Acts chapter 27, beginning now here at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian Thessalonica, was with us. Now, if you were just here for the first time on a Sunday morning and we sort of dropped down, parachute into Acts chapter 27, I wouldn't blame you at all for thinking, what's going on? Who are these people and what are they doing? Well, we've been making a verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. and We've been in a long time, a little bit more than a year. And as we're coming to the close of the book of Acts, it's just helpful for us to remember that this all began with Jesus speaking to his disciples. And before he ascended up to heaven and was enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, he gave his disciples a commission, a duty, a job to do. He told them that he wanted them to be his witnesses and to make disciples first in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then in the uttermost parts of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts just details how the disciples carried this out, how they took the command of Jesus seriously and they made disciples and other people were enlisted in the cause, not merely those first 12, but another man such as this man that we're dealing with now, this man named Paul. And Paul was such a dedicated servant of Jesus that he got himself into trouble. He faced, he preached such an uncompromising, uh, brave message and he wouldn't back down in the face of opposition. It got him into a lot of trouble. And so here he is suffering under some of that trouble. He's, he's in uh, Roman custody. He's on his way to Rome, ready to appear before Caesar. And while he's on his way to Rome, they put him on a ship. And that's just what we're talking about right here. Verses one and two, he's leaving the place of Caesarea. He's going to come all the way to Rome eventually by the end of the book of Acts. But in these two verses that we just read, they left Caesarea and they're sailing along the coast. We notice, first of all, that it describes the leader of the expedition, a man named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. And then we also read there in verse 2 that Paul has a couple of companions. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. So Aristarchus, this man of Thessalonica, he's with Paul, but there's another guy with Paul too. Did you figure out who it was? It's Luke. How do you know Luke is there? Because Luke is the author of Acts, and he says, we and us. It demonstrates that he's there. So basically, you have Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, and they're traveling together with a collection of many other people. As we're going to find out, there's about 276 people in this party traveling from Caesarea to Rome. That's a big group. And so they're making their way there. That's their first stop, verse 3. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So now they travel, taking off from Caesarea. They sail northward to Sidon. It's not a very long trip. You're just going up the coast a little bit. And the first stop, it's great. Everything's good. First stop on the cruise line, everything's good. No problems whatsoever. As a matter of fact, as they come to shore, they have a couple of days ashore in Sidon. Paul gives, uh, or excuse me, Paul receives liberty from Julius, the commander of the regiment, the man who's sort of the supervisor. Thing. Hey, you want to visit your friends? You want to connect with the Christians in Sidon? Go right ahead. We need to understand there were other prisoners bound for Rome on board this ship. But Paul was different than most of those prisoners. Paul was different from most of these prisoners because he was a not yet condemned man. Now, maybe he would be condemned when he appeared before Caesar, but he was not yet condemned. 
He was on his way to Rome to appear for trial before Caesar. Many of the other prisoners were condemned men who were going to Rome to die in the arena. They were going to be gladiator, you know, targets, that kind of thing, given over to the wild beasts. So you have some pretty rough characters, and you have Paul. Julius saw Paul. He saw his character. He saw what a good man he was. Okay, well, sure, I'll give you liberty. Go ahead. Meet with your friends in the city of Sidon. And then they take off again from Sidon. Verse 4, when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Great, so they're sailing all along. They put to sea from there, leaving Sidon. They sailed westward along the coast until they came to Myra. You could see it on the map that we put up on the PowerPoint. They're just sailing, taking shelter, under the, doing the characteristic way that they sailed over in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they didn't like to sail across the open seas, even if it was shorter. If they could, they'd like to stay along land and just carry their journey along the land. And that's exactly what they're doing. Very typical. They make it to Myra. Now, in verse 6... They take off from Myra. It says, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus, the wind was not permitting us to proceed. We sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salomna. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lesea. First of all, notice this. Verse 5, it mentions that they were on an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. You know, we got a pretty good idea of what these ships were like. This was a grain freighter. It took grain, wheat or barley or whatever it was, it took grain that was grown in Egypt and it was sailing it to Italy. Italy, especially the city of Rome, had a huge population, numbering in the millions, at least a million people. It had food needs. It couldn't supply all of its food needs just from what was grown in Italy. So they would grow grain in Egypt. They would put it on these ships. They would send it off out towards... And we have an idea of what these ships looked like. You know, the typical grain ship of that period was about 140 feet long. Approximately, you can think, the width of this room right here. Something like the width of this room. That's how long it was. It was something like 36 feet wide. So it, fairly narrow. Now, it, it, again, it had a big square sail on one mast and a lesser sail up front. And it didn't really think have what we think of as a rudder. Instead, they sailed with two paddles back at the stern, or as I like to call it, the back of the boat. <laughs> I don't know anything about this nautical stuff. Just what I read. Now, from what I understand, these particular ships and their design, they were sturdy... They were pretty well situated to sail sturdily, but they could not handle sailing into the wind. The design just didn't favor that. And as we're going to see a little bit later, that's exactly the problem that they run into. Now, shipping was a big business in the Roman world. One ancient writer put it like this. He said this, So many merchant ships arrive in Rome with cargoes from everywhere at all times of the year and after each harvest that the city seems to be the world's warehouse. The arrival and departure of ships never stops. It's amazing that the sea, not to mention the harbor, is big enough for these merchant ships. So there were ships buzzing around everywhere all across the Roman Empire through much of the year, although we're going to see that they took certain times off as sailing in certain parts of the empire. And so there they make their way, verses 7 and 8. They went off Cnidus, off Salome, to Fair Havens. The ship began to make its way west, 
eventually coming to the port called Fair Havens on the south side of the islands of Crete. So there they come eventually to Fair Havens. That's where it got interesting. Look at it here in verse 9. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Now, just get the picture in your mind here. Here you have a fairly big operation. This is a fairly large ship. It's got a lot of cargo. It's got a lot of investment in it. It's got 276 passengers and crew combined. So it's a substantial operation here. You got this ship and this guy, this preacher, this apostle. says, guys, let me just tell you something. Sailing is dangerous now because the fast is already over. Now, Paul didn't say that, but they knew that based on what we read in verse 9. The fast date in question here was probably October the 5th, which was the date of the Day of Atonement in A.D. 59. The idea is that as the winter approached, the weather was going to come more dangerous for sailing. Let me just say, from the middle of September to the middle of November, sailing was dangerous in that part of the Mediterranean. After the middle of November, you just didn't sail unless you were a real fool. You didn't sail until winter was over, at least not in that part of the Mediterranean world. So now they're well into the dangerous part of the year. They're approaching the don't you dare sail time of the year. And Paul, now I find this interesting, this statement that Paul makes, look at verse 10. Paul advised him saying, I just think, what? What chutzpah this guy has? I mean, okay, Mr. Preacher man, why don't you tell us how to sail our boat? We're experienced seamen here. Thank you. We run a lot of operations. But if the preacher wants to tell us how to sail the boat, why won't you go ahead, Mr. Preacher? Verse 10, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Now, I want you to understand, I don't think here that Paul was necessarily speaking as a prophet of God, even though the words ended up being true. It's entirely possible that he was speaking just with his knowledge of being on the seas. Did you know that by this time, Paul had already logged some 3,500 miles by sea. He had sailed over much of the Mediterranean already. And knowing the seasons, knowing the conditions, and perhaps with some supernatural wisdom, Paul advised them, I'm just telling you, I don't think you should go on. By the way, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 tells us, that by this time, Paul had already been shipwrecked three times. This is what he says. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters. And then he goes on. Wasn't that incredible to think that by this time, Paul had been shipwrecked three times, and at least once he had spent all night floating on wreckage in the deep. It's as if Paul's telling these guys, look, I'm not a sailor, I'm a preacher, I'm an apostle of God. But I know shipwrecks. I've been in, I don't know how many shipwrecks you guys, I've been in three. I don't know how many times you guys have floated on wreckage all through the night. I don't want to go there again. Don't sail this ship. Stay here at Fair Havens. But there was a problem with staying at Fair Havens. There were two problems, basically. Well, they're going to talk about here, verse 11 and 12. Look at it. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. 
And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening towards the southwest and northwest, and winter there. Notice this. Verse 11 says that the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken of by Paul. I don't know about you, but to me that makes perfect sense. If the owner of the ship says, hey, we're in, if the helmsman says, yeah, let's do it, then why would you listen to the preacher? So it makes sense that the centurion would make this judgment. But notice the other reason why they made the judgment, and I think that this played into a big part of it. Verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable to winter in. The name of this place was Fair Havens. To be honest, that seems like it was a name made up by the Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) Because, first of all, it wasn't really such a great harbor, especially in the winter. It was a dicey harbor. You didn't feel good about leaving your ship in the harbor of Fair Havens all through a winter. If the winter was tough, your ship might get beat up. Number two, this was a small Nowheresville town. You've got a crew and passengers, 276 people, that are thinking, do I want to spend all winter in Podunkville, you know, with nothing to do? Let's go to the bigger city. Listen, Phoenix. Now, not Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix on Crete. Phoenix is only about 40 miles away. It's on the same island. We're not talking about sailing onto Italy. Nobody would sail onto Italy at this time of year. We're just going to go 40 miles. We're just going to go, what was it on Gilligan's Isles? On a three-hour cruise. That's all we're going to do. Just a little trip. Just We're just going to go, not far at all. If I got the choice of spending my winter in Fairhavens, Podunkville, or in, yeah, the very much misnamed Fairhavens, or going on to Phoenix, let's go to Phoenix. It's just a short way. So that's what they decided to do because the harbor was not suitable to winter in. It wasn't a safe place. It wasn't a fun place. Let's go on to Phoenix. So verse 12, the majority advised to set sail from there also. They take a vote. Okay, who wants to spend the winter here in Fairhavens? Paul's hand goes up. Paul elbows Luke and Aristarchus. They put their hands up. But it's three against 273. All right, that's a majority. We're going to go on. But they failed to properly regard the words from the Apostle Paul. Look, I I have a lot of sympathy for the Roman people on here. Who wants to spend a winter in fair havens? Who wants to, uh, you know, listen to an apostle when you've got the wisdom of the men who have the most to lose? I mean, it's the owner of the ship who has the most to lose. And it seems so reasonable. Sailing up the coast 40 miles to another harbor on the same island. We're talking about the same island of Crete. Big deal. We can do this. This is all doable. But what happens? Verse 13. When the south wind blew softly. Doesn't that sound beautiful? It's just just like the beginning of a great tropical, you know, romance. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, They sailed close by Crete. You can see the plan unfolding. Everything's good. We're going to Phoenix. Goodbye, Fair Havens. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Claudia, we secured the skiff with difficulty. So they start out and everything looks good. Okay, great. Look, this is one day's sailing. Big deal. Fair havens to Phoenix. We're good. And the wind is great. And we took off and everything's great. And it's that infamous three-hour cruise from Gilligan's Island until verse 14. 
a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurycliden. And you know, when storms are really bad, they give them names, don't they? And, and the idea in the Greek and Roman mind, of course, it was a pagan idea, but it was like it was the gods standing up on the mountains throwing down wind bolts, you know, like thunderbolts, just sending them down to attack and to destroy ships. This was like a demonic wind in the minds of the pagans, Greek and Romans, and they wanted to focus everything they could against these ships. And so they named it Eurycliden. And all of a sudden, the wind is blowing in their face. And this is a ship that is unsuited for those kind of conditions. It's weighed down by all that great Egyptian grain. There's 276 people on board. And what can you do? Nothing. You can't really maneuver the ship. You're helpless before this great wind. All you can do, it says what they did. It says, when the ship was caught and we could not head into the wind, we let her drive. That's all we can do. Just let it drive. Hope the wind dies out and hope we can get our bearings from there and sail on to where we need to be. We secured the skiff with difficulty, verse 16. Now, the skiff, which, of course, you know, I got to look up all of these nautical terms because I don't even know what a skiff is. It's like the little boat that you tow behind. You know what, a, a dinghy, something like that? It's the little the little boat. I Not stern, back of the boat for me. It's, you know, little boat that tows behind. Normally, they would tow it behind, but when the weather got bad, they would bring it up onto the boat. And I like what it says there. It's sort of included as a little testimony from Luke. What does he say there, verse 16? We secured the skiff with difficulty. Now, what does he mean whenever Luke says we? He means me, Luke, the writer. And I can just imagine this. It's chaos on the boat. They're driving in the wind, and somebody shouts out, We forgot the skiff. Bring the skiff in. You, Mr. Pull a rope, bring that thing in. And Luke says, I'm a doctor. I'm not a sailor. I don't care. Pull that thing in. And Luke is just kind of venting a little bit when he says, we secured the skiff with difficulty. It was hard work bringing it in, but we did. Now, if it could go from bad to worse, it does. Look at it, verse 17. Now, again, I I really want you to let the movie run in your mind. 276 people on board a ship. It's stormy. It's scary. You got no GPS. You got no ship to ship or ship to shore radio. You are helpless. There's no Coast Guard. There's nothing. And you are being driven out to the open sea. Verse 17. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the certius sands, they struck sail and were so driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, these were enormous emergency measures. The first thing they did was they brought the skiff, the, the little boat, on the deck. Then they ran these cables underneath the hull just to sort of strengthen it. Again, these ships were built well, but we're talking about, you know, ancient technology. And you were nervous about the thing breaking apart and the great strain and stress of it all. So you secure underneath the hole with these cables. And then what do they do next? They strike sail. They take it down. They, they just allow themselves to be driven. Why? Because they don't want to end up on the Sirtius Sands. Now, the Sirtius Sands were south on the coast of North Africa. And they felt from the way they were being driven 
This is going to drive us south all the way to North Africa. There's a famous reef and wrecking ground, a whole area there called the Sirtius Sands. And they figured we're going to end up on this infamous wrecking ground, this sort of Bermuda Triangle for ships. We're headed there. We're in big trouble. So they're being driven they south. They think they don't really know. So what do they start doing? After bringing aboard the little boat, after undergirding it with the cables, after striking the sail and letting it drive, then it says in verses 18 and 19, they lightened the ship. Do you know what that means? They threw the cargo overboard. All that grain. Now, if you're the ship's owner, how do you feel about this? You, this ship is already a total financial loss. Forget this trip. I hope you got insurance because you're throwing away all your cargo. Everything that's paying for this ship, you're throwing it overboard. Throw off all, all, all the cargo. And if that's not enough, do you see what it says in verse 19? And then they th- threw the ship's tackle overboard. Do you know what the ship's tackle is? Now, we're not talking about fishing tackle. This isn't stuff that they would fish with from the boat. This is the equipment that you need to operate the sails and all. You're desperate when you start throwing over the ship's equipment to lighten the boat. We got rid of the grain. Well, we're still too heavy. I don't know. Throw over the equipment that we need to sail the boat. Throw that over too. That shows how desperate. But even with this, the ship continued to drive in the wind for what? Verse 19, for many days. Or excuse me, it says that in verse 20. Look at it, verse 20. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us. Ancient Greek for no small tempest, great big honking storm. That's what it is. I mean, it's... Look at the end phrase of verse 20. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Notice that. It's written by a man who was a passenger on the boat. This isn't somebody who heard about it secondhand. And Luke just says, I'll tell you, I was there. I'll tell you what it was like. There were 276 people. I couldn't find a one that thought we would be okay from this. All hope that we would be saved was given up. They couldn't see the sun. They couldn't see the stars. Do you know what that means? It meant they had no idea where they were or what direction they were going. Because they could only navigate by the position of the sun or stars. You see no sun. You see no stars. You have no idea either where you are or what direction you go. You are just being driven out on the open sea by these terrible winds until verse 20. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They had finally given up. They had no hope of survival. They did everything they thought they could. They brought in the skiff. They used the cables to undergird this ship. They took down the sail. They threw the cargo overboard. They threw the ship's equipment overboard. And at the end of it all, you know where they were? Still hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. Look, if you want to use that as a metaphor for life, I don't know. You, you meet people who are in that exact same place. I mean, they're in some kind of trouble, and they've done everything they can to fix it. Everything. They throw over this equipment. They strike the sail. They bring in the skiff. They, they do increasingly dramatic gestures. Nothing works until they do what? They give up all hope. Now, let me ask you, is that a good place or a bad place? Well, in some reference, obviously it's a bad place. You'd rather not be in the storm at all. But when you've got no hope, it sort of focuses your mind that you still have one hope, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the place they get to. Look at it here, verse 21. This is so dramatic. Put yourself in that situation. You don't know how many, how many days was it? Many days. 
It could have been a week or more that they were being tossed about on this ship. I, I can't imagine a more difficult, stressful, just excruciating situation until verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood up in the midst of them and said, by the way, long abstinence of food? What, do you think they were fasting? I don't think so. I think either there was no edible food on board or maybe a combination. Everybody was so seasick they couldn't even look at food. Right? Everybody, you can't, the, the misery on this boat is hard to describe. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Man, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. (laughs) Isn't Paul like your hero? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I have something to say. I told you so. It's just, he's so, he can't resist. It's beautiful. But then look at what he says next. This is so powerful. Verse 22. He says, and now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Isn't that sort of a good news, bad news kind of situation? Take heart. We're all going to be okay. I know it. All right. The ship's going to be wrecked and there'll be a total loss. Now, here's the thing. They're on the ship. It's kind of hard to see the equation where the ship is a total wreck, but everybody comes out of it okay. You, You can just imagine that. They're sick, they're nauseous, they're miserable, they're stressed. They hear Paul say, I told you so, which might have just, that could have started a riot right there. Paul could have been hanging from the mast in just a short time. But then he tells him this promise, because no, I know everybody's going to make it through this. Not a hair on anybody's head is going to be lost. Everybody's going to, but the ship is going to be a total loss. Sort of good news, bad news. And then he says in verse 23, and this is what we really want to get at. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted all you, all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. All right, forget that end part. We'll talk about that in a minute. Do you see what Paul says? I think this is so remarkable and such a great example of a life of faith. The first thing Paul says to everybody, well, okay, after he told them, I told you so. After he says that, he says, I want you to take heart because we're all going to be okay. Now, why does Paul say such a thing? Can you please understand? He doesn't have a single circumstantial reason to say that. There is not a single thing that's encouraging in the weather, in the condition of the ship, in the navigation, in the heart and the spirit of the crew. I mean, there's nothing to give them encouragement at all. But Paul says, I want you to take heart. Now, Paul, thank you, Mr. Rainbows in the sky. You know, pixie dust coming down around the clouds. How can you say this? And Paul says, I'll tell you how I can say it. I'm not just I'm not just saying things just to make, you know, don't worry, be happy. Let's all put on a cheerful face that that wears pretty thin, especially in these circumstances. Paul says, no, I've got something far more substantial for you. I have a word from the living God. And let me deliver this word from the living God to you. For there stood by me this night an angel of God of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. There's two things. There are massive encouragement there. First of all, it's the angelic presence. 
What a remarkable thing. An, an angel appeared to Paul. And I, we don't know any details about this angelic appearance, except that it happened and there was a message from the angel. And, and Paul remembered with that angelic appearance. Notice it. It says here, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Paul understood something right there in that moment. No, now wait a minute. I belong to God. And I serve him. And God will never, never forget those who belong to him. He will never, ever forget those who serve him. It doesn't matter what. And and I know, look, how can you resist using a storm like this as a metaphor for some of the trials that we undergo? And the same things that Paul understood and grabbed a hold of, we can grab a hold of as well. What would you say that a crucial thing is for just realize I belong to God. I have a loving father in heaven. He cares for the birds. He cares for the flowers. He cares for me. He will take care of me. I belong to God. And listen, it's a special bonus, too, if you can say this, and I hope every person in this room can say this, that you serve him as well. I serve him. I don't serve him perfectly. I wish I served him better. But you know what? At the end of the day, I serve God. I belong to him and I serve him. Now, that, that right there is just a special warm glow of comfort all over. You just realize that there's something bigger than yourself, that no matter all the circumstances, at the end of it all, you belong to God and you serve him. Although, look, obviously, it doesn't mean that everything goes easy for those who belong to God and those who serve him. I'm not trying to say that for a moment. Paul's present calamity disproves any such wrong idea. But it does mean that God is there with you in a special way. And he was with Paul. What was his word to him? Verse 24, do not be afraid. You know, there is a reason why Paul needed to hear that word, do not be afraid. Just a couple verses before, what did Luke say? It was in verse 20. Luke said, we had all given up hope. I can't exactly prove, but it seems at least to include Paul as well. At that moment, Paul's own faith was weak. Until God came along with just sort of a shot in the arm and a word from him saying, No, Paul, you belong to me. You're serving me. Do not be afraid. Just stop it. You are going to make it to Rome. You will. You're going to stand before Caesar. And right there, Paul says, okay, great, God. All right, fine. In my better moments, I understand that. You appointed me to go to Rome. I know I'm going to make it there, but I don't know anything about these other people. Maybe it wouldn't be these bizarre cases where Paul's the sole survivor of a great shipwreck. And God shows his hand by, by everybody being God, but his hand is upon his apostle. And then God says something wonderful to Paul. Did you see it there in verse 24? It says, indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. This is a marvelous phrase. First of all, it implies that Paul sought God for the safety of everybody on board that ship. As if Paul labored in prayer for the safety of everybody on board. And then God said this, okay, I grant it to you. Now, please understand, what a beautiful thing for Paul to be so concerned for everybody else. Paul could have, and I'm not saying he would have, but he could have had this attitude. Listen, I'm going to Rome. God promised me. Rest you, well, talk to God yourself. But Paul says, no, no, I'm going to Rome. I know it. But God, won't you please give me every... And I just picture the Apostle Paul laboring in prayer on that storm-top ship saying, Lord, give me everybody that's on board. I know you're going to preserve me. I ask for every soul on board this ship. Won't you please rescue them as well? You love them. Lord, at least in some sense they belong to you. And they could be serving you. Please, Lord, won't you save them as well? And you know what? The angel came and he delivered this... Paul, 
God's granted to you all of those souls as well. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Okay, I'll just bring the point home. Time is beginning to escape us just a little bit here, so I'll just be very to the point. No build-up for this. But do you even care about people perishing on the ship with you? Or, or is your attitude, frankly, look, I know I'm going to be rescued. Thank you, God. You've given me that promise. The people around me, well, they can pray for themselves. May God just fill our heart with more of that burden of Paul that we would hear that word from God, that after laboring in prayer for people around us, we would hear an angel of God speak to us, I have granted you the safety of everybody who sails with you. Lord, this home of mine, it's like a ship. And some of the members on board, they're, they're not safe. They're in danger of perishing. Won't you grant me their soul, Lord? Won't you, Jesus, take that unto yourself? Wouldn't you love to hear a word from God that he has done that? Well, then labor in prayer for them. Have that concern greater than just your own rescue. Paul couldn't keep this hope to himself. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, take heart, men. You have reason to take heart. God has given you assurance of your safety. And here's the final assurance. Paul says it in verse 25. He says, I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. Guys, I I don't believe the storm. I don't believe this ship that seems to be breaking apart right from underneath us. I don't believe the lack of heaven. I don't believe any of those things. I'll tell you who I believe greater than all that. I believe God. I believe God and I believe his word to me that it will be just as it was told me. Please notice carefully what Paul said in verse 25. He did not say, I believe in God. I hope you believe in God. That's a good mark in your favor if you believe in God. Good for you. But again, time's escaping us. I just need to get right to the point. Every demon in hell believes in God. But what they don't believe, they don't believe God. To believe in God is to acknowledge his existence. And I'll admit, that's a great starting point. I hope you believe in him. I hope you believe he's out there and that he you know, cares and all that. But to believe God is to believe his word. To say, God, when you say it to me in your word, it's true. And I'll just believe what you say. And Paul believed in God when there was nothing else to believe. He believed God when he couldn't believe the sailors, the ship, the sails, the wind, the centurion, human ingenuity, anything else. He did not have a fair weather faith. But he believed God right in the midst of the storm. Getting right to the point, you can believe God today. You can. I haven't been in a storm like this, but I've been in storms of life. And so have you. In the midst of it all, you know, you can believe God right in the midst. You can trust him. His word is true. It doesn't mean everything's going to go easy. Just we'll conclude with this. Look at verse 26. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, the circumstance, uh, run aground on a certain island, let me translate that for you, shipwreck. <laughs> and Paul's like, yeah, I've been through three of those things. It's not so bad. <laughs> we can, we can, the ship can be lost, but we can be saved. And I'll tell you what else Paul said. Paul didn't know what island, right? A certain island. What island is that? Paul says, I don't know. God didn't tell me everything about this. But he just told me, we're going to run aground on a certain island. I believe God. 
Can you say it? Can you just take it deep in your heart? I want you to believe God for your soul for eternity. I want you to believe God for the forgiveness of your sins. I want you to believe God that what Jesus Christ did on the cross counts for you. That he stood in your place as a guilty sinner. I want you to believe God for all of that. And then I want you to believe him again for where you're at right now in your life today. Because he's worthy of all of it. He's worthy of your trust for eternity. And he's worthy of your trust for what you're going through right now this morning. You can believe God. Father, that's my prayer for these precious people. Every person here, Lord, every person here. Father, I might even say especially me. We need to believe you and we need to believe you more. We need to stop trying to believe you and we need to simply believe you. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to hearts all over. Give them, Lord, a supernatural ability. I I pray, God, you would give us a, a gift of faith. We feel like that man in the Gospels where we say, Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Help us to believe you, no matter what the storm, because you're worthy of it. Now, Lord, we open up our hearts to worship you. We open up our hearts to sing our prayers to you. Please hear the cry of our heart as we believe you. In Jesus' name, amen.